0: And welcome to the Disability Law Show. John Scholes here. James Fireman in attendance. Tamara Gopian also in attendance. Thank you. Sanfiru, Tamarkin, LLP. Reach out to the two of them and their teams anytime. You're thinking, oh, I might just want to have a phone call on my own privately. You can do so. That's why the number is provided toll-free, of course. one 821 We're going to get your emails on the show today as well. That's help at disabilityrights.ca. And for other concerns. In fact, you want uh, short, concise, easy-to-digest memos about LTD Education, if you will, ltdfaq.ca is a good resource. Okay, we got the, the emails are coming in, guys. James, uh, the week that was usually how we start out, pal, the case of the day, whatever, what do you got cooking?
1: I had someone contact me earlier this week about a situation with their claims handler, and they were having a lot of difficulty in accessing their emails because this particular insurance company uses one of those proprietary portals. So rather than just, you know, being a normal person or entity and emailing from whatever account you have, they require you to log into the insurance company's website with your username and password and then you go to a particular area and that's Aye. where you have to go to find your email. And that's where you have to send them any email communication that you want. And so that's done deliberately. It's done to make the process more difficult. And it's done so that you don't have the ability to house all of your information in one place. And it really brought me to this point where I'm thinking, okay, we we need to start from basics again. And we need to make sure that people understand how you're supposed to communicate when you're dealing with your insurance company. And so I thought it might be worthwhile spending some time at the beginning of the show just talking about that, talking about the basics of communication with your insurance company, what you need to know. So first and foremost, what you really need to understand when you're dealing with your insurance company is the role that everybody is playing. And in particular, you need to understand what role the claims handler is playing. Because the claims handler, if they're good at their job, they will be very friendly to you they will tell you that they're there to help you with the claims process they're going to provide you they're going to say they're going to provide you with guidance and let you know everything that you need to know so that they can get your claim process and hopefully get you the benefits as quickly as possible they want you to feel like they're on your side that they're there to help you but i assure you they are not they work for your insurance company and your insurance company is not in the business of helping you. Your insurance company is in the business of making money, and they make money by paying out as few benefits as possible. Now, if that sounds cynical, it's only because I've been doing this for a really long time, and I understand exactly what the roles are here, and once you've been through it and seen the other side, there is no debate about this. There's no mistaking what role they are playing. I have seen so many cases where the claims handler has been incredibly friendly because we see transcripts of these conversations and the claims handler is very friendly and you, put, you, you let your guard down and you start talking to them and revealing things that you should be revealing. And I'm not suggesting you should be dishonest, but you, know, you should have your guard up. You should understand that this is someone who is there to find a reason to deny your claim or to cut off your benefits that is their purpose and you do need to understand that so you need that context before you even start and with that context my advice is you know you you don't want to be in conflict with your your claims handler you don't want to be aggressive with them and you certainly don't want to be rude be cordial be polite you know be pleasant even with them but understand what their role is. Their role is to find a way to get you off of claim. As long as you understand that you can be perfectly pleasant and polite with them, but simply provide the information you're required to and move on, and don't forget what their job is and what they're trying to do. Next, as I just mentioned before, you need to be honest. Even though being honest might mean that there's going to be information your insurer has that might undermine your claim. It is critical that you are honest at every point of the process, because if you're not, if you say something that is not true, that can be proven to be a falsehood, not something where your interpretation of it is one thing and someone else's is another, but if you say something to the effect of, I can't get out of bed, I can't do my shopping, And in fact you are going doing your shopping on a regular basis the fact that you're doing your shopping probably doesn't matter in and of itself being able to go shopping does not mean you're able to do your job particularly if you have a job that requires significant cognitive function and you have some sort of a brain injury or something that is affecting your ability to multitask you may well be able to go do grocery shopping in any number of regular day-to-day tasks, but not be able to function in your job. So the act of going to do your shopping isn't important in and of itself, but if you say you can't do it, and then there is surveillance of you going grocery shopping, all of a sudden, you can't be trusted anymore. Now, anytime there is anything that you say that isn't black and white, that isn't something that is objectively provable, the insurance company is going to have a very good reason not to believe you and you've undermined your claim. So you need to be forthright and honest at every step of the process. The other thing I would say is make sure that you include your doctor when you're dealing with the insurance company. So when your insurance company wants you to do something, perhaps they want you to submit to some treatment program, run that by your doctor first and have your doctor comment on that and provide that information from your doctor to your insurance company. If your insurance adjuster is in any way harassing you or if you feel like you're being harassed, talk to your doctor about that. Make sure that's something that is being recorded in the medical records that can be provided to the insurance company. And certainly, if you are having a personality issue with the claims handler, ask for a new claims handler to be be assigned. They may not agree with that, They may not do anything about it, but at least if you've asked, you've given yourself the opportunity, and if they refuse to do it and you ultimately wind up bringing litigation against them, it's going to look really badly on them that they didn't do anything about that. And then the last piece of advice that people need to know is everything needs to be reduced to writing. So if your claims handler calls you on the phone, as they often do, and tells you new information, I would always ask that they communicate that to you by email now sometimes they'll agree sometimes they won't oftentimes they won't that's okay if they won't do that then what i would do is tell them to hold on a minute get a pad of paper and a pen and just write down what is being said during the conversation the substance of what's being said and then at the end of the conversation write an email to the claims handler just summarizing the substance of what is said and then if there's ever a dispute down the road your version of it that you've contemporaneously put into an email and sent to them is gonna be relied on. Now, what do you do if you're in the situation of the person that contacted me, where the insurance company is using one of these portals? If you're not able to access the emails externally, take a screenshot and save them to somewhere else on your computer outside of that portal, so you have all that information down the road. Very significant that you keep your own copy of all communication that you can access, because down the road, if it's in a portal, the insurance company can revoke your access and then you don't have any of that information
0: for yourself. Tamar, what are you thinking?
2: Well, I I mean, I I echo James's comments, but I think about some of my clients and how uh, they're not familiar with computers and, you know, emails and even these encrypted emails are difficult for them to PDF and do the things that which I absolutely think they should be doing, but perhaps is really outside of the realm of their experience and training and so on. And so the add-on to that advice is, it's okay to write it down. Just get a pen and paper and just write it down. I have clients who will keep journals and just will put the date down and say, I was angry, my insurance adjuster said this, right? And just keep a running log. Even that in and of itself is helpful down the road. If there's a disconnect between yourself and your insurance company about, an issue on your file or what you thought was being said or what you thought was going to happen. I even think about situations, we get calls a lot actually, about people saying, I'm on my third or fourth adjuster. I don't even know who to call or who to contact. Emails go into the stratosphere and I, you know, I never get a response. Look, the fact that you're attempting though, if you're listening, the attempt should be recorded on your end. The fact that you call even maybe their customer service line even do that if you don't know who the point person is on your file, which I get is very frustrating, is totally offside the insurance company's obligations, but that documentation, that the way in which you contact the insurance company and that it's been a week or three days or two weeks and they haven't responded, that whole experience is really important leverage for lawyers like us when we get involved. We leverage these things against the insurance company. Or added compensation for things beyond just paying the disability benefit, but it's also now a question of did the insurance company act in their duty of good faith to the claimant? Were they being transparent? Were they being responsive? Were they being reasonable in the way that they were dealing with the claimant? And we can't just assume that every claimant knows how to use email, quite frankly. And so I think that that understanding of who the players are very important advice that james gave and also fitting yourself into that context and i get that it's a lot to ask people when they're dealing with health issues never dealt with an insurance adjuster before what do you do in circumstances like this do what you can is really the point And that open and honesty, it should actually go both ways. And so if you're feeling that your insurance company isn't acting fairly, then that is something that's important and it is absolutely a right to assert if they're not doing right by you by continuing to pay your LTD benefit if your doctors are supporting that you can't work. This is what we're here for.
0: And with that, we'll take a small break, guys. Get back into the emails as promised. In the meantime, though, you'll want to reach out to James and Tamara. We always tell you every show that you're invited to do, so don't be bashful. Just grab that phone, and it's uh, it's not going to be on air. You're going to have that conversation on your own, 1-855-821-5900. And the aforementioned email address, which we're going to go to momentarily, is uh, help at disabilityrights.ca. So we're just really getting warmed up. Lots more to go. Stick around. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. All right. Welcome back. to. back. The Disability Law Show. John Scholes here, just hosting. All the knowledge comes from James and Tamar, and we'll get right back into the uh, the emails, guys. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Norman Norm is the first. Says my LTD was accepted as a recurrence and am covered until April 2024, which is the two year mark. They are asking me to apply for CPP disability. Should I? Does it affect getting CPP when I retire? Says Norm. I'm 52. Good question. What do you think,
2: Mark? Yeah, a couple of good questions, actually, in there, John. And so let's deal with the back end of the question, which is what happens if I apply for CPP disability? Look, you want to make sure you get some clarity around it from Service Canada. But our understanding is that if you are approved for the disability part of CPP, it doesn't compromise what you get when you turn 60 or 65 as your regular CPP payment that you're expecting to get. In fact, I'm told that you can continue to accumulate contributions if you are approved for the disability benefit that go towards the retirement benefit that comes in at age 60 or 65. So that certainly shouldn't be a barrier for Norman to apply for CPP disability. The fact that the insurance company is asking you, though, is an interesting one. There's some insurers, John, that do it routinely, uh, and there's others who do it more strategically. So what do I mean by that? When they're getting close to that two-year mark, the insurance company has the onus, the legal onus, to do a review and see whether or not you're going to continue to qualify for LTD benefits under their policy. Because of the policy itself, which they've written, by the way, has a change in the definition to continue to qualify. And that change of definition arguably is a tougher test. And it says, no longer are we looking to see if Norman can go back to his own occupation the job that he was doing at the time that he became disabled. Now at this, at this two-year mark, we're looking to see is there something else Norman can do, given his education, given his training, given his experience, that would put him into an occupation that would offer him enough compensation, enough money, that lines up typically with what you're getting for your LTD benefit. Which is never 100% of what you were earning. It's typically only two-thirds. So, threshold for earnings is lower than the own occupation test and they're now looking at any job you can do and so that review starts with some insurers usually about a year a year and a half into you being approved for disability benefits and can line up with receiving or applying for cpp disability why because if the government accepts that you are totally disabled as well under their plan which is if you have a severe and prolonged disability It means that Norman could be entitled to anywhere from, you know, $900 a month to $1,500 a month of compensation from the government. And the insurance company then gets to obtain a credit or a deduction for that amount. So it serves two purposes. Number one, it signals that your doctor, Norman's doctor is supporting the severity of his conditions and that it's going to be prolonged which means the likelihood of him returning back to work is very, very low, according to his own doctors. And so it makes the analysis interesting from the insurance company's perspective, right, about what they can and can't do. And it also offers this element of compensation. If people apply for CPP disability and get approved, that allows the insurance company's risk of payments to be reduced. So these things are all happening for Norman. I don't expect him to understand or know that this is all happening. I think at the end of the day, he should understand that the application for CPP disability, I think the pros outweigh the cons, frankly. Yes, the biggest con is the fact that the insurance company gets a deduction. But the pros are huge. Not only are you then going to get compensation from the government, so if LTD stops or gets cut off prematurely, at least you've got some compensation coming in from the government for that disability benefit. But also, it's really good leverage against the insurance company if they do cut you off. To say, well, hang on guys, the government has approved me for this plan, they think I have a severe and prolonged disability, surely it must mean that I satisfy your test insurance company that I'm totally disabled from any occupation. So I think when I'm looking at this from Norman's perspective, and again, I haven't seen his medical information, but the fact that he's been approved by way of a recurrence tells me he's been on this path for a while, right, John? He's gone back to work. He's been off again. His health, he struggled with his health for some time and has now gotten to a point with himself, his health, his doctors, that in fact disability is something that's it's on the horizon and he's obviously on claim with, with the disability insurer. So I think it's an important conversation to have when you have been on this path for some time to have that discussion with your family doctor, your primary treating practitioner, and say, look, the insurance company has asked me to apply for CPP disability. What do you think, Doc? And be careful as well about how this gets communicated because insurance companies like to make it seem like this is mandatory. You must apply. And if you don't apply, you know, they don't quite say that we're going to cut you off, but there is sort of this subtlety around some of the letters that I've read from insurers that suggest this is a requirement under your policy. Most policies actually don't make it a requirement. What they say is that we get a deduction, And some policies go so far as to say if the insurance company thinks that Norman is eligible, then they will estimate an amount for the CPP disability and take that as a deduction? And that can happen, but not as common as the letter that I see that's pretty standard after a year, year and a half. You get this letter saying you must apply for CPP disability. So, conclusion, Norman should have a chat with his doctor. He should make a decision around the CPP disability and whether or not to apply and that decision should be made medically with his own team and not so much what the insurance company is saying is a requirement under the policy. Without seeing the policy, I wouldn't necessarily take the insurance company at their word.
1: James? Yeah, I I certainly agree. Generally, my advice to most people is applying for CPP disability makes a lot of sense, even with the offset as Tamar just went through. There are so many advantages to it. You're not in a worse position financially and it puts you in a better position in terms of your argument about whether you're entitled to LTD, that it just makes sense. Uh, you did mention that the, the answer to Norman's question about affecting the CPP proper, the, the CPP retirement benefit, uh, that is correct. My understanding as well is that once you're approved for CPP disability, then your contributions to your CPP retirement benefit will continue And so, in fact, if you're not working, it actually is beneficial for you to apply for CPP disability because otherwise you're not contributing to your CPP retirement benefit and your retirement benefit would be less if you don't apply for CPP disability. So it does make a lot of sense. And that information actually is courtesy of our late friend, Terry Corcoran. So I thank him again for that as always. Uh, The other thing I would say is if you are in the position where you're going to be applying for CPP disability I would also have your doctor fill out the forms for the disability tax credit at the same time both Definitely. the disability tax credit and CPP disability are run by the federal government but because it's our federal government they're run by different ministries I don't know what to tell you I wish it should be one application for both of them but of course it isn't because why would they do it efficiently they don't so you have to do two separate applications. Even though the test for both of them is fundamentally the same or very similar, it still requires two separate applications. But better to do it all at once because CPP disability is a taxable benefit. So you want to get that disability tax credit so that you're not out of pocket at any point. But if you're approved for one, I would generally expect you that you would be approved for both. So that would be my advice.
0: Norm, appreciate it. Moving down to Lucas, guys. It's help at disabilityrights.ca. Lucas says, guys have been on disability benefits for almost a year while waiting for surgery for an old knee injury. A co-worker mentioned that there is a possibility that the company will be sold soon. Now, if I lose my job, does that put my LTD claim in jeopardy? No, not at all. Dis- Sorry, I was going to say, if someone's off on that disability, should they communicate with their employer? What do you think? Both of those.
1: No, no, it's not an issue at all. Uh, the The critical point is whether or not you had insurance coverage at the point where you became disabled from working. Usually that's going to be the day that you went on medical leave. Sometimes it can be earlier than that or I suppose in theory later. But at any point, when it, whenever you, whenever it is determined that you became disabled from working, if you had coverage under a disability insurance policy at that point in time, then you remain covered for as long as you remain disabled up until age 65, assuming that's what your policy says, as almost all of them do. And so in Lucas's situation, he was almost certainly covered because he's been on disability benefits for almost a full year, and he's presumably continuing to get those benefits. And his concern is what happens if he loses his job? And the answer is, at least in terms of his disability benefits coverage, nothing. Nothing at all. He continues to have the benefit of that policy until the insurance company can assert that he is no longer disabled or until he reaches 65. It's as simple as that. Now, from a practical standpoint, if the company is sold or if there is a change in the insurers in any way, oftentimes when companies are sold, the purchasing company may have their own insurance provider and people in and, and the former employees of the initial company may move over to a different insurance provider at that point in time, or sometimes employers just bring in a different insurance provider. When that happens, what I said before is true. So if you are covered under the old policy, you remain covered as long as you're disabled. But from a practical standpoint, it creates an incentive for the former insurance company to find a way to get you off of their policy because they've otherwise severed the business relationship with your employer. And when that happens, there, be, there, there is an incentive to get rid of all of those extra ties that are keeping that policy alive. And if you have an ongoing claim, you are one of those additional ties keeping the policy alive. So you need to be aware of that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should be changing anything that you're doing but certainly i have seen it happen where there's been a change in insurers and all of a sudden the previous insurer starts becoming much more aggressive with the active claims looking for ways to get out from underpaying those benefits and just to be rid of that policy altogether Tamar?
2: yeah i mean it's 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 an interesting one because you know most people assume that their group disability policy is tied to their employment And, you know, theoretically, yes, but just because one ends doesn't mean the other ends, and vice versa, actually. So just because you're losing your job doesn't mean you should lose LTD. And if your LTD is cut off, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose your job, or you should lose your job. So it's an important interplay between the two, which is why, you know, our firm is so well suited to deal with these kinds of situations. And I think that, If there's a job loss you know you want to make sure that you're getting some employment advice around what's happening with that job loss do you have entitlements there is there some severance requirements there that the employer should be paying you know what is the nature of that job loss is it because the company i think lucas tells us actually the company is being sold so lucas wants to understand at least you know in some form whether or not his job is going to continue with the new company or is he actually losing his job Um, because of you know loss of business or bankruptcy or some other condition and that can have actually some significant employment entitlements and rights which are important for him to understand and i think john you you threw in that question around you know when someone is off on disability should they communicate with their employer yeah they should and could yeah and how often you know again you know these things are not written in stone right and so it's important when people are listening to our shows You know every situation is different but generally speaking your employer is actually entitled to know what's happening with you and your medical leave they're not entitled to know though why you're off they're not entitled to see your medical information but they are entitled to know is there a reasonable likelihood for you to return back to work and if so what that period of time is and sometimes there needs to be a return to work plan and put in place it could be that the insurer is involved maybe they're not involved but If the bottom line is, if your employer reaches out to you to communicate with you, even if you're on a disability leave, don't ignore that reach out. Make sure that you're responding, even if it's in writing, just briefly advising, look, I'm still on claim. Or, you know, is there a medical note that might be required for their file to keep you on a medical leave? If you ignore them, though, they can assume that you've abandoned your job. And once you do that, you lose all employment entitlements, and you don't want to do that. To to James's point, you might have extended health benefits that you want to still access. So again, nuanced information, but one that's really, really important. I always advise all my clients, don't ignore the employer, but just give them enough of what they need while you're still dealing with your health and the disability insurer.
0: All right, guys, good stuff. Some more emails coming up after the short break And I'll give you the contact information every time we go into a, uh, a break like now. one 821 5900 the number, help at disabilityrights.ca. And another way to ask questions anytime is my disabilityquestions.com. Jerry, see your email there. Thanks, pal. It's coming up in a moment as we continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Back with the Disability Law Show. As promised, Jerry, thanks for the email ahead of time. I'm going to read it right now. Guys, you can answer. Uh, Says, Does my insurance company need to make sure I can get another job before they cut me off at the two-year mark? My foot was amputated due to an infection a few years back. I've been struggling with my prosthetic and skin lesions ever since. I can sit at my computer or watch TV for a few hours, but moving around and doing basic things like driving, really hard. I've always worked in physical jobs, which is now out of the question completely. What are the insurance company's obligations in my particular situation? Guys, what do you think?
2: Well, say that the insurance company unfortunately doesn't, is not required to ensure that Jerry has a job at the two-year mark. It's unfortunate that that's the case, John, but but that's the reality is that the extent of their obligations is really what's written in the contract. And the contract says, do you qualify? Are you eligible for LTD? Yes or no? They make a decision, and that's what's going to flow from that decision at that two-year mark. If, in fact, Jerry's policy, which I assume has that change of definition that I talked about earlier in the show, I think what's worrisome is that he's got fairly significant health issues and significant enough that even a sedentary or sitting down type job is is sounds like is going to be problematic for jerry to do and that's usually the fallback right so when we see insurers do the analysis for the change of definition Unfortunately, we see them say, "Well, look, we don't expect you to do a physical job anymore, Jerry. But you know, we think you can answer some phones from home, and you know, that will get you, you know, the two-thirds um, qualifier for this alternative occupation test. And that's that. They'll try and wash their hands of him and cut off the LTD benefit. And they will look to see, you know, what other work can he do. You know, what is his education, training, and experience? They'll even go so far as to do." what's called a transferable skills analysis. We see those a lot where it's a so-called vocational specialist that gets signed to the file and they'll call Jerry and ask him about his health issues and they'll ask him about his you know work background and so on. And then they'll pump out basically a two-page form or a report to the insurance adjuster saying, okay, we've assumed that Jerry has these one or two restrictions and with those assumptions, we're gonna assume he's able to do these four jobs and then they will identify these jobs, and they'll put these jobs in a denial letter to Jerry saying, because we think you can do these four jobs, we're going to cut off your LTD benefits as of X date, and you know, if you're not happy with it, typical stuff, you can appeal, um, and they may even tell Jerry about his rights uh, to start a legal claim. So why do I bring all this up is because he asks us, what are the insurance company's obligations in his situation? they have an obligation to look at his situation fairly. They have an obligation to look at his health issues fairly. They have to do an even review of all of it together so that they can make their decision at the change of definition. But whether that actually happens is a whole different kettle of fish. And I think that's really where we get involved, but we also get quite frustrated on behalf of our clients and individuals like Jerry, because insurance companies want to wash their hands of people at that two year mark. That's really why they put this kind of wording in the policies is so that they can actually do exactly that. And so the obligation is there, whether or not they see that through is a whole different thing. And so I think from Jerry's perspective, he wants to cooperate, right, obviously, with all of the review that's going to happen. He wants to make sure that his doctors or his treating providers are being responsive to that change of definition. What do I mean by that? It's important that the medical information start to think about and talk about whether or not he's capable of doing any other jobs. It's no longer, yeah, it's pretty routine if you've got, uh, you know, physical injury, physical disability with a physical job, it should in theory mean that you will qualify for the full own occupation period of benefits. But doctors don't necessarily know that the lens for the insurance company is intentionally going to change. And so you, as a claimant, want to make sure that you bring your doctors along through that process and start to think about and talk about, well, well, doc, is there anything else I can do? You know, you know, I'm struggling, you know, I can't sit at a computer or watch TV for more than a few hours, I can't even really drive. And so, you know, does this then mean I should be pursuing other types of benefits, like the CPP disability benefit that we talked about? And certainly pursuing the long-term disability insurer for more benefits if they prematurely cut off his claim. And so having medical information available to the insurance company that talks about any occupation, any setting, is helpful when the insurance company is doing what they are required to do. And the legal illness is on them to review fairly, to assess what else Jerry can do, and make a decision on the claim on whether or not Jerry is going to be approved beyond that two-year mark. James, what do you think?
1: Well, I agree with everything you said, of course. Uh, the, the other issue that the insurance company has to look at is what we refer to as commensurate income. So when you are on disability benefits, and you get to that two year mark. The policy says that you are only entitled to benefits if you are disabled from any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education or experience, but what is almost never included in the policy but what the courts will always find is a requirement is the need to pay you an income level in this other occupation that is commensurate with what you had been making before commensurate doesn't mean equal it means usually around 60 percent of what you had been making before and so that's why your education and experience is really important because even if there are jobs that you are physically able to do with your disability, if you're not qualified to do a job that's going to pay you at least 60-65% of what you had been making before, then your insurance company is still going to be required to continue to pay you benefits. So that is, you know, those are the factors that you have to look at at the two-year mark. Your education, training, and experience, what you're qualified for. Your medical limits and restrictions and the commensurate income, and they need to satisfy all three elements of that in order to find something that they can say no longer entitles you to get benefits going forward.
0: Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, guys. We'll take a break. at the Melanie's email. We got some time here on the uh, bottom half of the show, well, bottom quarter, actually, so we'll do that. In the meantime, here's that email address so you can contribute to the show as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca, and the phone number outside the hour of the show, one 855 821 5900. We'll continue more. Of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You bet. We're back to the Disability Law Show. As promised, Melanie, thanks ahead of time for your contribution to the show uh, today. Here is uh, your email. James, here it is. I'll throw this one to you. He says, My son's 43. He suffered from depression, or he's suffered from depression since his early 20s, but he was mostly able to manage this with medication. He had a small business that he had to shut down last year. He applied for disability insurance, but was denied. He is seeing a psychiatrist covered by OHIP. There's no way he can work right now, in his psychiatrist agrees. He's going to appeal, but I've listened to your show and told he shouldn't be because it's a waste of time. But he doesn't want to start a legal claim because he doesn't have the money to pay for a lawyer. Are you able to help him at all? Can you at least talk to him? James, what do you think, pal? I think, Melanie, i got good news for you here. So
1: first and foremost, yes, we can certainly talk to him. There is never a charge. We don't charge for consultations. It's as simple as that. So it is a very easy access phone call. You give us a call, we'll set up a time to do a consultation. You don't need to provide a credit card. You can get whatever information you need and then we can make a plan on how best to move forward. But ultimately it's gonna be up to your son in terms of what he wants to do. There's no obligation to making the phone call. So no reason not to do it. In terms of hiring a lawyer, hiring my firm for example, but to be quite frank, Hiring any law firm that has any experience whatsoever in long-term disability, there's more good news here because all lawyers that practice in this area work on what we call a contingency fee basis. And what that means is that you don't pay for the legal fees until the end of the process and only if you're successful in recovering benefits from your insurance company. And in that scenario, you're, you pay a percentage of what's recovered. Mm-hmm. So it's, it can range. It can, I've seen it as low as 25. I've seen it as high as 40. And it can vary depending on firm to firm and in different jurisdictions. But that's the way that compensation is is paid to the lawyer as a percentage of what's recovered. And that's really important to understand because it means that you're not going out of pocket. It means that your son isn't going to have to pay money at the start in order to hire the lawyer and isn't going to have to pay fees as the case goes along. And I will tell you that my firm and most other firms practicing in this area also will cover any expenses in the litigation as the case goes along. Those are what we refer to as disbursements. And so that's something that you really want to look for and make sure that your law firm is going to cover because you don't want to come to the realization a couple months in that you have to cough up the thousand dollars in order to get the information needed to bring your claim our firm certainly doesn't charge our clients for any disbursements as a case goes along and the insurance company at the end of the case is going to cover those anyhow so there isn't any reason why your law firm shouldn't be covered that should be something that is paid for by the by the law firm and then the law firm gets to recover that from the insurance company at the end of the case so you know, That's all good news there, because it means that there isn't really a barrier for your son in order to get first legal advice, and if he wants to proceed to get legal representation. And there's a lot of reasons why we do it this way. The most obvious, of course, is that, Melanie, people who are in your son's position, people who aren't working, people who aren't getting disability benefits, are very rarely going to be in a position where they're going to be able to afford hiring a lawyer out of pocket. That's obvious. But there's a couple other reasons why the contingency fee agreement is really useful. So it ensures that the interest of the lawyer is the same as the interest of the client. If the insurance company pays more money, we both do better. So our interests are aligned that way. The other really important thing, and this is really problematic when lawyers are hired on an hourly basis, when lawyers are hired on an hourly basis, it creates an incentive to drag the litigation out, the longer the litigation takes, invariably, the more time the lawyer is going to put in, and the more money they're going to be able to charge their client. When you work on a contingency, spending more time does nothing to add to the fees. The lawyer is getting nothing. A percentage is the percentage. If you're, you know, if you're charging 25 percent of what you recover. 25% is 25% whether it takes 10 months or 10 years. Right. And so from the lawyer's perspective, you want to get it resolved as soon as you reasonably can. And so this is really critical. It means your interests in terms of timing are perfectly aligned. Just like your client, you want to get it resolved as soon as you reasonably can, or as much as you reasonably can. The other, There's, other, there's two other really nice benefits to the contingency fee arrangement, too. One of them is that if your lawyer is, has not called you and told you that there's a problem with your case, you can be pretty confident that they think your case is a really good case because they're only gonna get paid if it's successful. So that should give you some peace of mind that your, your lawyer continues to think very positively about your, about your claim. And the other really nice thing, and this is a big difference between hiring a lawyer on a contingency versus an hourly basis, is if you have questions, you ask them and you get answers and you don't have to worry about what it's going to cost you, because again we're not paid by the hour so if you ask us 20 questions you're going to pay the exact same thing as if you ask us no questions so you might as well ask questions when you have them because you want to get that information and you're not going to have to pay a dollar extra to get them. it's a whole lot better than having to weigh whether or not your question is worth that you know four hundred dollars an hour that your lawyer is charging you <laughs> and say okay well this will only be 50 minutes so is it worth a hundred bucks ask this question uh, you don't have to worry about that when you hire a lawyer on a contingency
0: basis so that's a huge Tamar, last minute or two of yours.
2: Yeah so so in my mind and of course I agree entirely with what James is saying here this is a really important feature of disability litigation but Taking it even a step higher than that, to me, this is an access to justice issue, okay? It's a big concept. It's one that's really, really important. What I really like about the fee process, the way that we do things, and the fact that we work across the country is that people like Melanie and her son and everybody else who's written in to us can access the expertise of the right lawyer, and at a cost that is nothing to them, zero. If we don't do our jobs right our clients don't get the compensation they deserve so we're pretty darn good at our jobs and it it helps me it it emboldens me to then assist and advocate people who really need the help to do it without worrying about do i need to spend an extra 10 hours on this file yes because when i do that extra work on the file it means my client gets better compensation and i am not sending them a bill at the end in the way that I would have when I worked for the big bad insurance companies on an hourly basis, every six minutes gets captured by way of time. And so I never want our fees to be a barrier for people to contact us. Consultations are absolutely free and you can take, if we are getting involved in your matter, you can take from that a real understanding that we think that the claim has merit, has value, and we wanna put the insurance company's feet to the fire in all of the ways that we have experienced to do that at no cost to claimants on this contingency contingency fee arrangement. So really win-win for everyone, I think. And like I said, it, it allows us to work for people across the country in as remote areas as possible and allow them to use our expertise.
0: And with that, we are done. So the moral of the story, reach out to James and Tamar, fear nothing, just get the information start with a phone call uh, at least. And I'll give you those uh, that information as we wrap up here, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And you can also ask your questions at mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show.